What is the biggest challenge of our day? What is the most appropriate way that we can solve this? How can we not just be an innovation, but an innovation catalyst within a bigger ecosystem? How can we look holistically at this? The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. Get ready to meet a powerhouse. I'm talking about Dr. Susan Graham, the winner of the Advanced Emerging Leader Award for 2020. Susan is the CEO of Dendra Systems, a data analytics company that's using AI and drone technology to restore natural ecosystems. There, she leads a team of ecologists, engineers, and computer scientists to assess ecosystems and execute customized restoration plans to support plant, animal, and microbial life. Dr. Graham has a deep understanding of the biodiversity that makes up complex systems, and she partners with leading Fortune 500 companies and the world's top regulatory authorities to comprehensively restore the land they manage. The UK, an Australian-based tech company, aims to re-green the planet using the speed and accuracy of technology to enable governments to restore forests 150 times faster than planting by hand, at less than 10 times the cost. Their goal is to plant 500 billion trees by 2060. Isn't that extraordinary? I can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, Susan graduated from the University of Oxford with a Doctorate of Philosophy in Biomedical Engineering in 2015. And her work spun out into Oxonics, a successfully funded drug company delivery service based in Oxford. For her work across research startups and inspiring young women in tech, she was unsurprisingly named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and was also the winner of the New York Venture Summer Pitch Competition in 2017. Let's get into it. Here's Dr. Susan Graham. Well, Dr. Susan Graham, I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for making the time to chat. I'm kicking Thanks off this me. whole series, really asking people, you know, with where the world is starting in 2021, what's top of mind for you right here, right now? Oh, 2021. This is, I mean, this is the decade of action. That's what top, top of mind for me. And um, we're, we're kicking off 2021 with some exciting uh, releases in terms of our technology and what that means for scale and action uh, but but also it's action in context how do we solve some of these enormous challenges that are, are not something that you solve in one year um, they, they take decades to solve how do you solve them in the context of what's happening in the world today both you know from the the drivers and the ever-increasing awareness around the environment uh, but also in a world of COVID. Uh, where where that is posing real challenges for folks. I sense this kind of energy and just tenacity in you. Where does that come from? What's the origin of that? Yeah, I, I certainly have a bit of impatience uh, or a you know, bias towards action, as, as people call it. Um, and I, I think I was probably born with it, um, <laughs> to, to be honest. Um, and and I've had to balance that. My My entry into entrepreneurship was actually about when I was 14. Um, wow, what was the first business? 
well, uh, we'll call it a business, but in inverted commas, um, <laughs> uh, it, it was trading cattle actually on my parents' property. As um, one does. That's not bad for a 14 year old. That's not a lemonade store, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so th- this is this is you know something I've I've always loved you know seeing how can you how can you do something what can we do how can we build a business around that to make it sustainable uh, from a financial perspective and I think that my time at Oxford um, doing my PhD there they actually encourage a lot of the opposite which is to really think about what you're doing and your implications so when you you come with action and you say this is what I'm going to do then go yeah, go sit under a tree and think about what those implications might be. Um, and so I think- frustrating for someone with a bias for action? I can imagine, you know, spending a couple of years doing a PhD, deep diving into one specific thing and understanding it from every dimension and every existing bit of knowledge on it. That, that would have really fought that, that, uh, that would have been tense internally. That's right. I mean, it, it, it was, it was a conflict to begin with because these two concepts of action, go, 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 you know, just do, just do. Um, and, you know, doing is the best kind of thinking, uh, kind of philosophy, that is in conflict with wait, think, really understand the implications for, for all stakeholders, long-term, short-term, everything. But what it has yielded uh, is actually, you know, Dendra is born out of those two philosophies combined together. It's born out of thinking, what is the biggest challenge of our day? What is the most appropriate way that we can solve this? How can we not just be an innovation, but an innovation catalyst within a bigger ecosystem? How can we look holistically at this? And then combining that with bias towards action, driving down restoration costs, you know, using technology to our greatest advantage, iterating every week, every day, every hour, how can we improve uh, our systems? And so it is, it is a combination of these two things. I want to pick on a, a couple of threads there. So how do you go from 14-year-old trading cattle on, on your parents' farm to ending up at Oxford doing a PhD and then the, the origin of Dendra that was born out of that? Can you talk us through kind of that progression? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it probably progressed um, at the realisation when I I wanted to do something meaningful. And so I was thinking of being a, a medical doctor, but I wanted to scale by, beyond my two hands. And early on, I had this appreciation that, medical doctors are able to do incredible things and save people's lives. Um, you know, what can be more <laughs> impactful than that? But they're limited by their own two hands. And, and so that's what drew me into engineering, the concept that you can create something which scales beyond you. And with time, my passion for, for, for that scale of impact, what does impact mean, um, for me, it means scaling to the point that I can physically never meet the people that get impacted by what, what I do and what our team does. Um, that, for me, is the definition of, of impact at scale, uh, is when even if you tried to meet everybody in your lifetime, you physically can't do it. And, and that's, that, that's that driver. So, so I studied medical science and engineering uh, at, at, at university. And those two disciplines, again, they're, they're uh, very different and yet very complementary. And they, they focus around that really practical element of engineering and obviously the, the deep science of understanding real challenges that are, that are at play. Uh, and that's what ultimately led me to, to Oxford to do a PhD in biomedical engineering. And I continued to start a number of uh, small ventures while there, did a little bit of a loop around the U.S., 
and and you know every different culture australian across europe across the us bring something else and i've brought i've brought each of those with me on my journey culminating in what i'm doing now awesome and i want to talk about that but i'm interested for what are the elements you think you picked up on the journey what do you think the australian flair is the uk flair the american flair what what have you brought together into that melting pot yeah, I think I think the Australian flair is directness. There's an element of directness, which actually, from a product perspective, means that you can be quite direct in understanding someone's challenge, uh, asking direct questions, and getting to the nub of the matter really quickly, and and not necessarily skirting around the outside. Uh, the the UK in my time there, there's obviously a lot of business that goes on in in the UK. Uh, there's a lot of diplomacy that that happens there as well. Uh, so it's about partnership. It's about communication in a nuanced fashion. And as I say, I think the Oxford part particularly is is around really understanding meaningful impact and over time scales of thousands of years rather than, you know, uh, budget cycles, <laughs> annual budget cycles. And in the US, I mean, they're known for for doing business. They're known for commercialising and getting to that point of value proposition and uh, and commercial success. So combining all of those three, uh, I think you you're able to to build a business on those on those pillars. That's a very powerful cocktail, and I want to talk about that cocktail, which is Dendra. So it's a data analytics company that uses AI and drone technology to restore natural ecosystems. Now that's a that is a very cool and unique concept from my in my awareness. Where does an idea like that come from? What birthed it? Yeah, I mean the idea came out of the challenge, and the challenge just made no sense to us. What we were looking at was that you've got biodiversity lost 10 to 1,000 times higher than it's been for the last 10 million years. You've got increasing carbon in the atmosphere, and everyone knows the sawtooth graph that goes up and up and up and up mm-hmm. and up. And then you've got 2 billion hectares of degraded land, which is a real challenge for the future of food and, and, and for our... 2 uh, billion hectares, livelihood. that is extraordinary. 2 billion hectares, Yeah. I mean, we, we started with six trillion trees on Earth, and we've got about three trillion left. Wow. So we've we've got about half, roughly, uh, the number of trees that we started with on Earth, and and the targets mainly are centered around planting about a trillion trees. So there'll still be a deficit, but but it's about restoring the degraded land, which is not really being put to use either from an agricultural and productive sense, um, or you know, habitat for humans or or anybody. But it's also a waste of opportunity. And we see this as the opportunity where planting trees, restoring healthy ecosystems, solves for your first two challenges. It solves for your restoration and protection of biodiversity. And it solves for the carbon sequestration challenge. So we thought, oh, why? That seems so simple. What's going on? And that's where we realised that really there was a lack of technology and it's not just about not everything needs a technical solution. Um, so what what was the problem there? Well, it was a lack of information for people to act on and it was a lack of scale, a complete mismatch in scales. We're going backwards. There are billions of dollars spent each year in, in rest, restoring land, but the scale just is tiny compared to the rate of, of land degradation. And so that's what we came in to, to supercharge is to tip the balance and to say, right, let's use technology to empower people and empower ecosystems to 
tip the balance in favour of the natural world. You just really quite powerfully unpacked the problem for us there. I'm intrigued as you journey towards the the solution, bringing that to life, realising it. What's been the hardest part of the actual solving of the problem so far? Yeah, I I do love that question of what's the hardest part. The hardest part is always the thing that happened yesterday uh, because (laughs) as soon as you've solved it, it's easy. (laughs) You just do that solution again and again and again. So we've gone through different challenges. Uh, We started in 2014. And we were obviously the first company to, to plant trees from drones. Um, we were the first company to even dare to say that we were going to do species-level analytics of complex biodiverse ecosystems. It was the holy grail that, you know, That's there were definitely mouthful. moments. Can you, can you step us through that? What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, what it means is, you know, I think we're all familiar with facial recognition. Um, and that's that's used uh, across different platforms. This is facial recognition for plants and animals wow. and, and land, right? It's looking at every leaf. It's looking at every blade of grass, every tail peeping out from under a tree or b- beside a rock, whether it's a lizard or a kangaroo or it's a nankeen kestrel flying or, or it's a, just a eucalyptus tree or, you know, or a weed species that's growing there. And so being able to... Uh, get over those technical challenges. We have we have a very strong technical team. And so often when you're good at something, you don't think it's hard. Um, but we need to remind ourselves that we've actually done some world firsts where it wasn't possible. Now it is. Now we do it at scale. We, we you know, scale up everything that we do. And so so that was an initial challenge. And, and then it's about how do we integrate that into everybody's workflows? And so our customers, uh, obviously they've been, doing this work of restoring ecosystems for, for decades in some cases. And uh, it's about integrating into their workflows, um, providing real value, and then scaling up within that framework. And then, you know, we are pushing the bounds on, well, what's next? And, and how can we change carbon markets? How can we use the technology that we have available to us today to fundamentally realign incentives i love the the vision and the audacity of kind of the goals you've said i read somewhere you plan to plant 500 billion trees by 2060 uh which is remarkable i'm intrigued when you're building a team to take on world first you've conquered a number already you've got many more in your sights how do you hire how do you hire for stuff that hasn't been done before effectively and for that the collaborative mix that you're after yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. Um, obviously, you know, there's the standards of, you know, getting the right people, doing the right jobs with the right experience, but it comes down to the values and the culture and, and who are the types of people that, that should be joining us. And when we think of the pillars of our, our values that surround courage, you know, we are courageous. We're taking on something that hasn't been done before and that's on a daily basis. You need courage and ownership. Um, this isn't a time... To, to sit back and think that someone else will do it. No, this is our team. This is right now. This is us. And, and, and there's urgency in it. You know, this is the year that counts. This is the day that counts. So ownership is, is really important. I think being persistently positive is another persistently one. Persistently positive, I like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because there'll be setbacks. I mean, you know, it, it's not an easy task that, that we take on. So oh, no. persistently positive, um, but also the sense of being together. We're in this together. We're in it together as a team. We're also in it together with all other stakeholders, mm. our customers, the regulators, the community, governments. 
um, you know, there are a number of stakeholders in in getting this right for the world, and and we believe strongly in in doing it together with everyone. Um, this comes back to not just being an innovation, but being an innovation catalyst. Mm. We want to lift everybody else up around us in everything they do because that's how we win. We can't do it alone. I'm interested, you know, when you talk about values like courage and persistently positive and things like that, how you bring them to life in culture. What are some of the cornerstone habits of your culture? Like the things you do repeatedly or that you make kind of the, the way, this is the Dendra way, that have really enabled you to bring that to life? I think, I think it's about what you celebrate often and, and celebrating some of those moments where other teams perhaps uh, think of it as a negative and we say, no, that's a positive because that's a learning and, and we're going we're gonna to take from that. Being persistently positive, that's a behaviour that, that is every day. And, you know, you can have down days, but it's about encouraging others. So when someone says, uh, you know, I've got this hiccup, it, it's about coming with a solution. So instead of just bringing a problem, uh, one of the behaviours that, that our team often have is that they'll say, this is the problem. These are the five different solutions that are on the table. This one's the one to go with that we're going to try first. So being persistently positive is is around being creative and we find it's infectious. Hmm. And, and so it means that you can actually be persistently positive with everyone around you as well. Um, and and that, that's what drives action. And mentors might be part of your answer to this, but you did mention yeah, the, the challenge of an entrepreneur scientist when you're doing groundbreaking work is the setbacks piece. What gives you resolve in those moments or what do you turn to to kind of recharge batteries and get yourself up to go again when you face that brick wall in some way, shape or form? Yeah, I mean, the brick wall is often energising in itself. So um, because <laughs> a challenge... Feeling you might be one of those people. Yeah, it's a red rag to a wall, isn't it? That's right, that's right. A, ch- a challenge to an engineer is the energy. That's the, that's the exciting yeah. thing. That's the food that feeds uh, someone who, who craves uh, to solve problems. But there are setbacks of other kinds where you can't quite see the challenge. All you see is 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 the setback. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in those moments, it is about understanding what's going on from a logical perspective, but also getting the support that you need, communicating and saying this is this is where we're at, and we'll need that support. And so I, I think that comes from from everybody uh, around. Sometimes I find even mentoring someone else can give you that energy you know so often when you speak to someone who's just on the beginning of their journey they've got enormous amounts of energy and they've not seen all the challenges yet um, you can sort of take that naivety uh, in a positive way naivety can be can be powerful um, it can be it can be very useful uh, and so you can sort of return some of that to yourself to to move on be persistently positive and and just go for it Awesome. I love that. And I found it really interesting that breaking out the setback and the challenge piece. I haven't had anyone quite frame it like that before. And I think that's a really interesting distinction to make. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've accomplished such an extraordinary amount at such a young age. I'm interested if you had to distill it down into a particular nugget of advice that you would give to your 16 year old self or to a, an emerging, you know, young leader who's potentially interested in, in, again, I want to make a difference on these big challenges that are shaking the globe and I, I want to be the change I want to see. What, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it's about being true to yourself, uh, backing yourself and, and going with it. And, you know, you only need a few simple ingredients. Uh, you need the right people. So get the right people. 
you know, spend some time with them on a weekend, right? It's about getting getting the right people. It doesn't take that much energy. It takes a coffee or a beer. And then, you know, choose something that's meaningful. For for me, that that's what will give you long-lasting energy uh, and purpose and it will give others long-lasting energy and purpose. Uh, so choose something that's meaningful because, you know, everyone's got so much talent, so much potential. So let's tackle the let's tackle the big things. Let's tackle the things that are worthwhile. Sure, you know, I definitely iterated with with a few different ideas that, um, you know, tackled challenges. They were real challenges, but they were very niche and they were not perhaps so so impactful. And I think I would have said to myself, try and tackle some of the, the more uh, impactful things first. And it, it comes down to, to confidence because if you, if you want to be the change that you want to see in the world, then you've really got to back yourself and, um, and back the team around you to do that. Uh, you've got to feed yourself to be able to feed others. I love that. That's such a good point. And when you talk about the big picture stuff, stepping back out and looking at your work for a second, when we talk about restoring natural ecosystems, that is an enormous challenge. You've given us a sense of the scale in this conversation. It's also interesting for me because you mentioned the diversity of your stakeholders. You're dealing with communities, governments, Fortune 500 companies, you name it. How do you think about that collaborative effort? What better job do we need to be doing to make a real dent um, when it comes to collaboration in terms of restoring natural ecosystems? Yeah, and I, I think it comes down to who plays what role. Absolutely. Um, so this is not a five-year-old soccer team where they're all where everyone's running around chasing the one ball. No, it's about everyone plays their position, play to their strength, and and get the right cadence according to that. And and that's where first I did for us identifying who are the players and wh- what are their strengths, but also making sure that they understand that too because it is a new space. The field is changing. And, and, and so everyone's having to learn that themselves and, and, and we try to help new entrants understand where they fit as well um, because that, that's important. So when it, when it comes to partnerships, you know, everyone does play a role um, and, and governments play a role on that long arc to provide regulatory frameworks. Now, interestingly, on the ecosystem and environment space, generally private sector is leading government. So there's a bit of a reversal of horse and cart and, and so what that means is that government does have to catch up. <laughs> um, you know, the playbook is being written by, by the private sector. Government needs to catch up and document the playbook in, into, into laws and regulations. But then in terms of the stakeholders, ecosystem restoration is not some sort of magic. It doesn't just take an announcement from a large company to say, I'm going to be net, uh, net going to net zero by 2050 or 2040 or 2030 or whatever the target is, the announcement doesn't in itself do anything. What you then need is the full stakeholder map beneath that. You need the land, you need the environmental managers, uh, you need the technology providers like us to actually make the scale feasible, you need the finance in place. Uh, and so that's where we try and be the glue between stakeholders and, as I say, empower stakeholders empower the finance teams with information about their assets to make good decisions and for it to be feasible for them to decrease risk uh, empower the landowners to understand what is happening on the land and, and what it means for them and to empower environmental managers to improve their efficiencies and improve their management to get better outcomes 
for the land. So it, it's about getting all of these players working in at, at, at the right time. <laughs> some of the cadence is daily and some is going to be yearly or, you know, uh, over many years. I guess if, if uh, you and I were to catch up in five years and have a conversation, what change would you hope had happened, I guess, in, more in the enabling environment to finally make a difference at the rate of progression when it comes to restoring natural uh, ecosystems? Yeah, so in, in developed nations, um, if governments haven't pulled themselves together and, and, and got regulation uh, into place and, and, and positioned that very strongly, that would be disappointing in five years. And so I, I hope that, that that happens. In terms of developing nations, uh, some of those enabling factors are around community and, and capacity building. And so there are a number of players that, that need to be part of that to make that happen. But fundamentally, the scale we're talking about cannot continue to exist at the current scale that, that folks operate at. And so it, it's about changing the scale and changing the scale of everything, all the inputs, changing the scale of the finance, changing the scale of, of regulation and, and reporting, changing the scale of contracting teams and, and, and what can, what's needed. So that, that's what I see in five years looking back is, is going to be fundamentally different. Kind of pivots into the final question I want to ask you, which is we've touched on a lot today and it's been absolutely energising talking to you. I feel like I can go and run a marathon after this chat, which is awesome. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you've mentioned that importance of turning talk into action and implementation. If you were to encourage people listening to this chat today to go and do one thing to change the scale of how they're working, thinking, you name it, what would you encourage them to, to go and do? I'd encourage them to take an honest reflection it's not always easy to to honestly reflect on on what you're doing today but to say look I thought I was doing things really well and I am with the resources that I have but if I changed my resources if I changed some of these inputs what might the world look like and I think that that mindset change I often think about it as an energy barrier no matter what you need to do, you need to imagine a world is different tomorrow than it is today. And there's an energy barrier associated with that. So just make the energy barrier go away. Just visualize the reality in the future and, and make it happen today. And for people in this world, what that means is saying, look, I've been doing this for the last 10, 20, 30 years in this way. But if I had some superpower, <laughs> and we'll call it AI plus drones plus ecology, you know, all mixed in together, what might that look like? Oh, it looks different. And allowing yourself to, to see a different world ahead uh, and planning for that future rather than the future that, that plays out without it. Awesome food for thought to finish on. Oh, Susan Graham, you're an absolute powerhouse. I'm blown away, as I said, by the rate of progress you're making with these big, hairy, audacious goals you've set. And I can't wait to watch the journey that lies ahead. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for the, the example of just new thinking and audacious visioning that I feel like you're it, it, catalyzing in the world. Like, it really excites me what you're doing and the energy and the approach you're bringing to it. So thank you so much for your time today and for everything you're doing. Oh, thanks, Holly. It's been uh, great to be with you today. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.